Good evening. If you could turn in your copies of the scriptures to Ezra chapter 9. Our passage tonight is Ezra chapter 9. And um, just before we begin, let's just read the whole chapter together so we know what, what our text is. After these things had been done, the officials pr- approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands, And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now... For a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet, our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve, and have given us a such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? 
so that there was no so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape O Lord the God of Israel you are just for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today behold we are before you in our guilt for none can stand before you because of this In the 2016 presidential election between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, 10 of the 538 electors uh, in the Electoral College attempted to vote differently than their pledged votes. Of these 10 votes, of these 10 electors, three were denied to do this by their state laws. Two successfully pulled votes away from Donald Trump and five successfully reallocated votes away from Hillary Clinton. This was not the first time by any means in American history that electors have voted contrary to their pledged votes. However, 2016 marked the first time that faithless electors were ever punished with fines in the history of our country. There was a huge political commotion over the uh, the casting of electoral votes. The goal of altering the course of the election failed, but it it raised a stir about the democracy and fairness of the Electoral College. How could such a small handful of individuals affect the course of a nation? In the passage we are studying today, like the faithless electors in the 2016 election, faithlessness again here causes quite a stir. In this case, faithlessness here threatens the survival of the nation of Israel. The Israelites have not been faithful to the covenant, but have instead intermarried with pagan peoples. Ezra enters this scene and responds with earnest confession over the faithlessness of Israel. So sermon tonight, in view of God's character and law, what does confession for faithlessness faithlessness look like? And this text here, Ezra 9 offers, in his prayer, he offers five aspects of a sinner's confession for faithlessness, faithlessness to God in light of his character and his law. So those are the five points on your outline. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you again tonight and just ask for your word to enlighten us. I pray that um, as I studied and as I learned from your word and and this godly example of a man, Ezra, who loved you and who feared you, and as he responded to, with confession for faithlessness, I pray that it also help us to be able to take from this passage and apply to our own lives, our own prayer lives, our walks with you, that we would uh, have fellowship with you, and that we'd be ready to repent and turn to you and not stray from you. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word and how it gives us light and that we may walk by it. So please, by your spirit, Enlighten our minds and our hearts tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Before we dive into the prayer of Ezra, I want to spend some time establishing uh, the proper context for this prayer. So the year was 458 B.C. Ezra the priest and the second wave of exiles uh, from Babylon arrive in Jerusalem under the commission of Artaxerxes I of Persia. The first wave of exiles had returned some 80 years prior and the temple had been completed about 
58 years prior to Ezra's arrival. Within those 58 years, since the temple was rebuilt, and the second wave of exiles, it, seemed the resolve, it seems as though the resolve of the Israelite people and their fervor for the things of God have been compromised. Many fell into the sin of intermarriage during this time. So the time period, that's the time period. Now who is Ezra? So please turn to Ezra 7, back a couple of chapters, 7 verses 1 through 10. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Achitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given him. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So some things that we can find out and learn about his character is that he was a he was a scribe. He was skilled in the laws, in the law of Moses. So he knew the law of the Lord and the Torah. It also says that the hand of the Lord is upon him. So the Lord has raised Ezra up for this time. In verse 10, Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So we see Ezra here as a person who He's passionate for the Lord, who loves the Lord, he loves his law, and who has been raised up and grown up in captivity most likely. He's never been has never seen Jerusalem, but the Lord has put in him a heart to love him and to, to study his law. So what other details uh, from these verses in Ezra seven are important to us? So verse nine uh, says when they left, it's on the first day of the fifth month. And he began to, to go up from uh, Babylonia, and, or Babylon. And then um, on the first day of the fifth month, they arrived. So that's uh, a four-month journey. And uh, this, uh, it's a 900-mile trek from Babylon to Jerusalem. And it's over the course of four months. And uh, Jewish months are 30 days. So it's a 120-day trip. So 900 divided by 120 is pace of seven and a half miles per day, uh, which would be like from us, if we um, left New Hope and went to, went down uh, Mays Road to Kellogg and over to uh, the airport. So seven and a half miles, it's a pretty slow pace, uh, but they're traveling with a lot 
of, there's a large entourage, there's a lot of luggage, a lot of gold um, and precious materials with them. And as they're traveling to Jerusalem, the excitement is bubbling up amongst the Jews. Ezra and those with him have never been to Jerusalem before in their lives, and they only know of it from what they have read, heard, and sung about. Ezra and many with him were zealous and had volunteered to go on this trip and um, this pilgrimage to, to, um, under the commission of Artaxerxes I. So when we read Ezra chapter 7, verse 12 through 16, uh, we find this commission from this king of Persia. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the, of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, bowed willingly for the house of of their God that is in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and he continues on um, with his commission for several more um, verses. And so but the, the big picture, why is Artaxerxes commissioning this? Uh, we read in verse 23 uh, that Artaxerxes is trying to find favor with foreign gods. And so verse 23 is, Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. And yet, um, at the same time, when we see Ezra's response to this commission in verses 27 and 28, we learn that Ezra says that ultimately God has put uh, this into the heart of King Artaxerxes. So, Verse 27 reads, Blessed be the Lord, the God, the God of our fathers, who has put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the kings and his counselors and before all, all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. So they have arrived in the fifth month of this year and um, now scholars will uh, argue that um, Ezra 9 and actually the, the material that, um, that I, I took from the library that I borrowed from the library um, argued that Ezra in chapter 9 which is our passage tonight took place two months after the arrival of Ezra and all the exiles. So that would be the seventh month. And this requires um, some explanation. Uh, so this uh, commentary that I read, H.G. Williamson had a discussion on the rearrangement of texts within um, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, by an editor. So he rearranged it and in summary he concluded that Nehemiah chapter 8 originally fit between Ezra chapter 8 and Ezra chapter 9. 
the reason for the rearrangement of the text is basically the editor wished for theological reasons to include Ezra's reading of the law, which is Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, in his account of the climax of the work of both Ezra and Nehemiah. So please turn with me, establishing more context for this prayer, to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verses 1 through 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matzathiah, Shema, Anaiah, Uriah, Elkiah, and Maaseiah, on his right hand in Padiah, Mishael, Malkajah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masai, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, Pelebites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So as verse 2 informs us, it's the first day of the seventh month that this takes place. And uh, what, what is, so what has Ezra been doing for two months? Uh, presumably has, he has been teaching the law and preparing the people for the, for the religious festival, such as what's taking place here. Uh, and what is recorded here in, in, in Nehemiah 8 when, as they gather together to hear the law of the Lord proclaimed. Uh, this is be the, the Feast of Booths. So he's preparing them for that during these two months. And they've come to this feast. And Ezra and several Levites continue to teach the law for a whole week uh, according to the Feast of Booths. And while the Israelites learned about their religious festival and about the law of Moses during this time. Now on day 8, scholar, uh, scholars believe that the chronic, chronological sequence, um, and, and at the end here of chapter 8, which is day 8, goes, picks back up in Ezra chapter 9, uh, Ezra chapter 9 being the, the focus of our study today. So did, the question is, did Ezra know intermarriage was going on before he had been there for two months? Some scholars think that he would have known, 
Others think that it could be plausible that he may not have known of the intermarriage. Regardless, what, what, we can't, what we do know is that the reading of the law has led to awareness and confrontation amongst the people of, uh, the, of the law and what it says on intermarriage. And so this reading of the law brings conviction of sin. Let's give it, so turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 1 through 3 for an example of what they would have read. Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. So... As we turn back to uh, Ezra chapter 9, the, the list here in Deuteronomy 7 is, has significant overlap. The people that have intermarried, uh, the, the nations that they have intermarried with here in Ezra chapter 9. Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. So they have clearly transgressed the law of God. And so... Out of repentance, the elders bring this to the attention of Ezra. So now we come to the prayer, or let's read Ezra. Let's read Ezra verses nine, verses one through five. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, "The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites." the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment, my toque corn, and fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying. So Ezra presumes a position here that is humble. He spreads out his hands to the Lord his God. And with this we come to point number the first the first point with that with that long introduction, we come to the first point. God's holiness provokes the sinner 
to be ashamed over faithlessness. Verses 5 through 7. O my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the land. To the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. So Ezra is humbled, and he says, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face. So why? He says he's due to the iniquities and the great guilt. He cannot look at God in the face, so to speak. As a child who knows he's in trouble, cannot look his parents in the face, here Ezra and those weeping with him on behalf of their fellow Jews are experiencing intense shame and guilt. They blush to lift their face to the Lord. What is meant by iniquities? Uh, the Hebrew word awan is uh, used here for iniquities and it's the root word means to bend or to twist. They've taken God's law, they've taken what's right and good and, and twisted twisted it. So this is a, iniquities is usually meant theologically for it's usually meant as actual sin as opposed to original sin. So it's the actual sins that the nation has done, not just their inherited guilt from being Adam's, being part of Adam's race. And then, so it's iniquities and guilt. So that Hebrew word is asam. And similarly, this describes committing an offense or the process of becoming guilty. But it can also describe a state of being guilty or responsible for the offense. So here the, the Israelites have sinned. They've transgressed God's law by, by intermarriage. And notice that Ezra in, in verse 7 says, We, he is the priest and he's leading uh, this confession over corporate guilt. And he's identifying with the people there. So he is helping the Israelites to grieve rightly over this matter. Verse 7 says, the, the phrase, from the days of our fathers to this day. So there's shame over a history of sinfulness. It's not just this incident. And uh, as you know, the, the nation of Israel sinned over and over again. Even before they entered the land, they had sinned against the Lord. And Moses had to intercede for them. And throughout, God raised up judges and kings. Um, to intercede for them and godly men to help them to turn back on their way. So they have this long history in this past of sin and guilt. And as you consider and look over your life, do you have a history of sin? And I would say yes, since we are all human, we are sinners by birth, we all have a history of transgression, of iniquity and guilt against the Lord. So we ought not to be proud of our sin but ashamed. We ought to see God for His holiness and be provoked to shame over our faithlessness to Him. God's handing Israel over to destruction, to captivity, to exile. It made certain that there could be no pride in their sin. They were humbled and disgraced. The proud sinner will always, in God's timing, be humbled 
what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. It's a proverb from, uh, I think it's chapter 13 or 14 and verse 22. So, think of it. Israel has, is like this proverb. They have um, been like a dog returning to their vomit and sin. They are like a sow who's just washed herself and goes right back to wallowing in the mud. Think of that. Israel, the holy people of God, have become like a dog and like a pig, like unclean beasts. And we like to think of ourselves highly and fondly and have self-esteem. But really, we're like Israel. We're like beasts. We're like a dog that returns to his vomit to eat it again, or like a pig that just goes back to the mud. So consider, consider your ways. Consider that we are sinful, that God is holy and just. Are you proud of your sin? Or are you humbled and ashamed of your sin? Today we see more and more people who are in our culture who are brazenly bold and shameless in their sin. They think that they are free, that they are independent, autonomous. But in reality, they are slaves to their sin. It rules over their lives, leaving devastating consequences, often in the short term, and certainly in the long term, when God judges mankind and calls them to account. There's a certain absurdity over with those who are shameless about their sin, because they are bringing destruction on themselves, on their own head, while at the same time being very proud that they are doing that. They're destroying themselves. So do not be like this. Do not ignore the guilt that God graciously gives to those who will have their conscience cleansed by Christ. Job questioned God's justice, and he called God to the stand. And God answered Job out of the whirlwind. God put Job in his place through questioning and through a display of his holiness and majesty. To this Job confessed, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So here God's holiness leads and his law leads to shame and guilt. So direct your guilt, by way of application, direct your guilt into an expression to God, a humble expression, a contrite expression. Express even with anguish, with tears, as we see Ezra here, with weeping. Don't hold your emotion back before God. Give God your heart, your grief, your hurt, your guilt, your sin. Give Him your sincerity, as we see here. Alright, so number two is God's favor provokes a sinner to acknowledge God's undeserved kindness. Verses 8 and 9. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. 
for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, to give us protection in in Judea and Jerusalem. So he says that favor has been shown to the Lord our God. This uh, Hebrew word is tehenna, to show favor. It could also mean to show mercy, to pardon, or to show compassion. So the, the question is, why has God shown them favor? And is there anything that the Israelites have done to, to deserve this? Is there any good in them? Of course, you guys know the answer is no. This is 100% God's grace and mercy. It is not merited by the nation of Israel any more than we merit God's grace and mercy. It's 100% God's grace. So in what ways was God showing the nation of Israel mercy in these verses? Um, Number one is going to be by leaving a remnant. Before exile, they were a booming nation. And after exile, only a fraction of a fraction of the Jewish people were left. God prophesied that he would not entirely wipe out all of Israel, yet make no mistake, God's judgment was very severe. Ezekiel 5, the prophecy says, And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, use it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take balances for weighing and divide the hair. A third part you shall burn in the fire in the midst of the city, and the days of the siege are completed. And a third part you shall take and strike with the sword all around the city. And a third part you shall scatter to the wind, and I will unsheath the sword after them. And you shall take from these a small number and bind them in the skirts of your robe. And of these again you shall take some and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. And from there a fire will come out into all the house of Israel." Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. And she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the, the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you and have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules and have not acted not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. So God severely punished the nation of Israel, and only a small fraction of what was originally there were able to come back. But God has also showed them mercy by leaving that small fraction, by leaving that little remnant. Another way this, these verses say God has shown them mercy is by giving them a secure hold within his holy place. So this is in reference to the temple which was built some 58 years prior and the Jews are blessed with this temple uh, because they can worship God and come to him in repentance and they can worship him and honor him through that temple. So this is another way in which God has shown mercy or favor 
upon them. And then um, there's a, the phrase here that says slavery, that, that they are slaves. And um, in what ways are they, they slaves? Nehemiah chapter 9 says, Now therefore, our God, the great and the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, or upon our kings, or princes, or priests, or prophets, or fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria unto this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and, have acted, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave, even in their own kingdom and amid their, your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. And so they are a remnant that has returned, a small fraction, and they are they have kings and nations over them. They are far from the blessing that they enjoyed during the reign um, at the height of the, the nation of Israel of, of Solomon, which is the pinnacle of, of Israel's glory. And yet in the midst of this destitution, Ezra proclaims that God is, has been gracious to them. Jerusalem is literally in the midst of ruins their walls are broken down with many enemies around them and they have to pay tribute to Persia. And yet Ezra proclaims that God's gracious. I've heard and spoken to people and many turn away from God during trying times. They think that since God is not caring for them and answering their prayers in the way they want, he must not exist or must not deserve their love and worship or must not care for them. According to God's word, this is you know, not biblically founded ideas. This is you know, really an ignorance. Mankind is showered upon by God's torrential mercy and favor every day. And God requires something for this mercy. He requires repentance. Romans 2 Verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's kindness is meant to lead sinners to repentance. It's grace. Do you see your life and do you think of yourself as deserving more or do you see God's mercy and repentance or do you see God's mercy and favor upon your life? Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So how can we apply this? You can, you sh- we can acknowledge God's favor and mercy and not spurn his mercy and turn to him in repentance. We can be 
pressed on by acknowledging, God, you are so merciful even to me, Lord. I don't deserve, get what I deserve. I repent and I follow you. So don't presume that you are getting from God less blessing than you deserve. Rather, acknowledge that you are getting from God less judgment than you deserve. Number three, God's law provokes the sinner to confess his guilt and failing to keep that law. Verses 10 through 12. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end, their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughter to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek the peace, their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. As we read earlier in Deuteronomy 7, um, nation of Israel, many individuals and remnants have intermarried in direct violation with God's law. The peoples that they chose to marry were on the list in Deuteronomy chapter 7. So they're guilty. And as verse uh, 11 says, that God has commanded them speaking through the prophets. So here, God spoke through Moses, the law in Deuteronomy. And God uses men to speak his truth, both then and now. The proclamation of God's word, which we're blessed to hear every Sunday that we gather together. We attend, be attentive, therefore, to this, to uh, his word in the services that we uh, gather together and as we hear his word preached, proclaimed. Be expectant for God to speak. Read his word. Know his word. Know his law. Know how you have transgressed it and come repenting back to him. Why was there this rule of intermarrying against intermarrying? Essentially, they could not serve two masters. The God of these nations was not the God who is. They were, he, they, those gods were, would, would, be idol, like it would be idolatry to follow those gods. They're pagans, um, nations all around them. And so this is essentially not a racial issue, but a moral issue, a, an issue of, of serving and knowing God and worshiping him in purity. So, um, I mean, as we have, as we've heard from from this pulpit, there's three proper uses or three proper uses of the law, or three divisions of the original law. There's the moral division of the law, the civil division of the law, and the ceremonial division uh, of the law. And while the civil and the ceremonial have passed for us who are New Testament believers, the moral use of the law still applies to us. And 
Um, as, as Augustine wrote, the law bids us as we try to fulfill its requirements and becoming wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask the help of grace. And so as we see the law of God, we know that we fail to keep it. And so we're wearied under it and we see Christ and his glory and for who he is and the law is like a tutor that brings us to Christ. Many of you know the evangelist Ray Comfort and um, how he simply uses the, the Ten Commandments in his evangelism and uh, just basically the law is laid out and their lives, are, they're reflecting themselves according to what they see in the Ten Commandments and they, they fail to keep it and quite simply the Spirit works through his law and his word and many of them um, say, yeah, I, I deserve judgment, I deserve hell. And so by way of application, if we know God's word and his law, you know, we'll be able to, to lead others to Christ, to be able to proclaim his, uh, their sin of God's holiness and of the remedy that is available in Christ. And also for our own selves, as we see his law and how we fail to keep it, we must be honest with ourselves and with God and must confess that when we have transgressed, um, name, name your sin, which is that you're committing against him and his law and how, it is, and how you've broken God's law and repent of that sin. Um, number four, God's chastisement provokes a sinner to repudiate his sin, verses 13 through 14. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? So here we see that Ezra is repudiating, he's rejecting the sin of Israel. God loved Israel, so he chastised them through sending them into exile. And God has promised the same chastisement for New Testament believers in Hebrews chapter 12. And for sake of time, I won't go there. So I know many are familiar with this passage. But imagine, so imagine if you will, and speaking and thinking about the chastisement of God, imagine two criminals who have gone to jail for the same crime. And each spends 10 years in jail uh, to pay for that crime. When freed, one of the men decides to leave his old life of crime behind him. And he does not return to his vomit. He does not return to the mire while the other man gets caught committing another crime the same week that he was released. So which one would you be? Ezra is repudiating, repudiating the former sin for which they went into exile. And like the man that went back and sinned again, committed crime again, right after his, le- his release, seems very ridiculous to us because he spent 10 years in jail and during those 10 years he didn't learn his lesson and yet Israel spent 
many more years in captivity and yet returns the sin. And so the, the, um, the analogy there is, you know, of course, you know, think of, of, of what you've done, what the, the, the penalty of sin is, and of what God has, how God has chastised you in the past, and, and be wise and leave off and follow him and forsake your sin, repudiate your sin. Many do not take crime or punishment seriously until they realize that there are consequences. So God is gracious to give us chastisement and punishment. Um, think of the principle of, cha- of raising a son and, and the idea of sp- spare the rod and spoil the child. Proverbs 13.24 says, Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And um, the way we are and the way even kids are is if you don't discipline them, if there aren't consequences for sin, then uh, they'll just go on doing it. They, they don't care. They just want to do what they want to do. And, uh, and in the same way, we are like that. And so God chastises us. And those whom he loves as sons, he chastises. So the, by way of application... Don't be foolish. Take heed to God's reproof and chastisement. Take heed to God's rebuke that he gives through his spirit, through his word, uh, through other people. Repudiate your sin and, or the sin of your community, of our community that we live in, that everyone takes for granted as normal. Um, now, coming to the last uh, lesson we can learn from this prayer. God's justice provokes the sinner to confess that God is righteous in his judgment. Verses 14 through 15. Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Ezra says, God, you are just in wiping out the majority of Israel, only leaving us a remnant. You have killed us off and we deserve it. Like a guilty man caught red-handed and surrounded by policemen without any way of escape, when he is arrested, he closes his mouth, puts his hand behind his back, waiting to be handcuffed and hauled off to jail. He speaks no words to the police, for he has no arguments against them. He does not plead innocent, for his perpetrators witnessed the actions firsthand and caught him before he could get away with it. So the sinner should recognize himself before God and cast himself at God's feet. God knows all things, sees all things. He sees through the deceptions that we even tell ourselves. If God would have completely wiped out Israel, he would have been just. If God had not saved a single sinner and damned all mankind to hell, he would have been just. When a case has risen to the federal Supreme Court and the outcome is unfavorable, there is no higher court for which someone could appeal. God, God is the highest of all high courts. He is the perfectly just judge. 
all of his judgments, all of his rulings. That he has ruled to punish sin with damnation forever. The only place where this can be resolved is by faithing, by placing faith, believing in Christ who paid for the punishment of sin. As a matter of fact, I do deserve God's judgment. I have no excuses. Here I am, Lord. I am a guilty sinner. You can admit now and face. You can admit now or you can admit when you face the judgment seat of Christ. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So for final observations, uh, since we won't be studying chapter 10, and, and chapter 9 and chapter 10 go together, I just want to tie up loose ends. Chapter 10, verse 10 uh, says, And Ezra the priest and stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now, make con- now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourself from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain, for we cannot stand in the open. Essentially, they then take over the course of, of a few days or weeks, they do divorce their foreign wives and, and choose the lesser of two evils in this case, which is to divorce the, the foreign wives and to follow, and follow the Lord. So they could not do both. So, well, chapter 9 here with Ezra praying... It's just, uh, it shows what a prayer of repentance can look like. It is a beautiful, powerful prayer. It's heartfelt. And God used it to produce widespread repentance and change. Humbleness in a contrite heart is beautiful to God because it gives Him glory and allows Him to show forgiveness and have fellowship with mankind. And then chapter 10 here shows that not only is confession important, but also repentance. It's the, the action that follows and forsaking the sin and leaving the sin that they, the sinner clung to and leaving it and turning to Christ and grasping onto Christ. Charles Spurgeon said, I think sometimes God treats men as Benjamin Franklin treated the man who stood loafing in his bookshop and at last took up a book and said, How much is this? Franklin replied, a shilling. A shilling, he said. A shilling, and he would not give the price. After staying for about ten minutes, he said, Come, Mr. Franklin, now what will you take for it? Franklin answered, Two shillings. No, he said, you are joking. I am not joking, said Franklin. The price is two shillings. The man waited and sat a while thinking. I want the book, he drawled out. Still, I will not give two shillings. What will you take for it? Franklin said. Three shillings. Well, said the man, why did you raise the price? 
To which Franklin responded, You see, you have wasted so much of my time that I could better have afforded to have taken one shilling at first than three shillings now. Sometimes, if men come to Christ at, that, at the very first invitation, it is a sweet and easy coming. But when people wait, when they postpone believing, when they violate conscience, when they tread down all the uprising of holy thoughts within them, it becomes much harder for them to trust in Christ than it would have been when he was first preached to them. So come to Christ quickly and honestly. I urge you, don't wait. Come to him early and often to restore fellowship with him when you have strayed, confessing your faithlessness to him.